Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Wouldn't it be nice to take a spring break from some house payments? Savewithconrad.com can show you how to skip your next two house payments and get a cheaper monthly payment. We routinely help our podcast listeners save five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month. And I'm talking to you if you're in a 30 year loan or if you've got credit card debt, it's not a matter of if we can save you money. It's a matter of how much find out right now for free at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And oh, by the way, it's no cost, no obligation. And if I can't save you money, I won't waste your time. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved and we're licensed in more than 40 states. So what are you waiting for? Lower your monthly payments today at savewithconrad.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Dark Side of the Podcast. I know you were probably expecting a little grilling JR content, but we figure, hey, since we're all quarantined, why not have a little fun and talk about the phenomenal new series that airs Tuesday nights at 10 p.m. on Vice, Dark Side of the Ring. And joining us this week again, like every week, uh, are the producers behind this incredible series. Uh, Jason, Evan, how you guys doing? Good. Good, good. How are you? Man, I'm excited to be here. I, uh, I'm loving this. This has become appointment television for myself and so many other wrestling fans. And I want to thank you guys for really burning the midnight oil to get this stuff out here. I mean, an episode like this Dino Bravo episode, Jason, this has been in the works for years. Has it not? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, uh, you could say in the works almost for three years, like it's always been part of like the initial development development of the series. And we always wanted to this like story to be part of the dark side of the ring, um, season since the very beginning. Uh, so yeah, it was initially supposed to be an episode for season one. Um, but midway through production, uh, we had our episode order like cut short and initially I think we were doing eight or 10 episodes and then they cut us down to only six. And the Dino Bravo episode was one of the episodes that we had already we had shot 75% of and it basically came down to we either could release like the Dino Bravo episode or the Gino Hernandez episode and when we just felt like the Gino Hernandez episode was complete at that time where we still kind of felt like there was more work that we could do for the Dino Bravo episode and so we kind of, it was a very tough decision that we had to do uh, but we like held our fin- fingers crossed, hoping that we would get a season two so that we could finish it. Um, and if we weren't going to get a season two, I know Evan and I, we like had plans to like literally rescue this episode uh, from Vice to release <laughs> yeah. it. But, you know, thank God they, you know, greenlit a season two and then we, they gave us the means to be able to like do a couple more interviews to finish it. Yeah, we would have probably yeah gotten it out of ice, and we probably would have I don't know done anything we could have to because we because we hadn't shot any of the reenactments uh, for it yeah. yet, and we were missing a couple of interviews. We felt like like the episode needed a couple of 
interviews to really fill the story out. And um, <clears throat> I, I, I think I remember us discussing, like, if we were to release it on our own, that we would have, I don't know, just had to do, like, re- reenactments with action figures or something in order to get it to work. Yeah, that's true. Because initially, the whole idea of the reenactments came from us filming are like Hasbro figures with like a a flashlight. And even I think like some of the first episodes, I know the Montreal Screwjob episode, the Bruiser Brody episode, there were cuts of those episodes that had all the reenactments were with uh, wrestling action figures. And we actually- They were all tempted in, yeah. They were all tempted in. Uh, So we thought that might have been something we would have explored had we had to take this episode out of their hands and just release it on our own. So you talk about reenactments and uh, when I first got to see this episode a couple of weeks ago, immediately I texted Evan and said, wow, those hitmen look familiar. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the reenactments with Jimmy Hart. And I mean, I, I feel like there's some cameos in there for some guys. I know <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, we needed a Jimmy Hart, and honestly, for some reason it was becoming difficult to find someone that just had that I felt had the right silhouette of Jimmy Hart. And I think we were in production <sighs> meeting and we were just like going through cast members and I'm just like staring at Evan and I'm just like, you know what? You could be Jimmy Hart. Like, no, I, I remember what happened. It was, <laughs> I, I, I think I was like, I was like, we were working on the Chris Benoit episodes or something. This was during the season two. And I remember I had like a ton of stuff going on that day. And I remember I just like walked in because you guys were all doing the casting meetings for our our first reenactment shoot of season two, which was Dino Bravo and Brawl for All. And I just remember like I was going to go stop by the casting session just to to get like a really quick two minute update on like where you guys are at because we were going to shoot in like literally a couple of days. And I just remember, like, you went through the list, like, yep, we got this guy, we got this guy, oh, yeah, and you're going to be Jimmy Hart. And I'm just like, I'm going to be Jimmy Hart? Like, what? How did this decision come to be? And it was like, well, you're the only person we got, and, you know, your hair kind of works, and so here we go. You know, and I was like, yeah, and so I was like, all right, I guess so, and yeah. (laughs) And then, uh, yeah, so I found myself, I never thought I'd play Jimmy Hart on television, so I guess that's something I can add to my uh, resume. Yeah, you were great. Thank you. Let's talk about... (laughs) You know, the uh, the story of Dino Bravo, which I'll admit, I grew up a WWF fan, so my only real knowledge of Dino Bravo is what I saw on WWF programming. I, I didn't know, as was explained in the documentary, that he was essentially the Hulk Hogan of Montreal. Uh, how mm-hmm. fascinating, you know, you guys are even a, a little younger than me, so I'm sure you guys probably just grew up knowing Dino from WWF. When you really start mm-hmm. to, to dig deeper into the background of Dino Bravo, you know, living here in, in Alabama, I'm familiar with the territory system. So we knew that, you know, Fritz had a territory and the Funks had a territories and the Crockett's had a territory and McMahon's had a territory. But I have to admit, I didn't know much about the Montreal territory or that it was set up sort of similar to the way a lot of other territories were, where one of the big attractions also has a piece of the group and, that was certainly the case that you guys talked about with Bruiser Brody down in Puerto Rico, but Dino Bravo sort of had his same thing going for him in Montreal with, uh, he was not only the top guy, but also had a piece of the business. How fun was it to just learn all of that, Evan? Oh, it was awesome. I mean, again, yeah, total blind spot for me growing up and just like, you know, similar to yourself, like I knew Dino Bravo, you know, from like those, 
uh, early matches in like the Survivor Series pay-per-views or like the, the Royal Rumble, you know, stuff where he would just be these early entrants and early early matches on the cards, and you just didn't really know a lot about him, and he didn't really connect with me as a kid. It didn't really it didn't really like make much of an impression. Um, but uh, obviously, researching the series and when we were when we were putting together the plans for season one, as Jason was saying, you know, uh, this is a story that always kind of popped up as a as a very intriguing, you know, mafia meets wrestling kind of story. And we were, you know, we were really trying to find as many stories that felt that true crime sort of vibe for our show. And and this one, you know, you can't ignore uh, with that. But um, talking with Pat, uh, you know, uh, Pat LaProd, who you see in the episode, he's he's one of the expert uh, wrestling historians voices in the episode. And, um, you know, talking to Gino Brito and and uh, talking to Tony Moulet, who worked for that, you know, for some of those Montreal promotions. Yeah, it was amazing because so many people came through there. You know, uh, like um, Andre the Giant was a regular. The Road Warriors were a regular. Haku was up there. He was huge up there. Um, and just kind of learning about all that and um, seeing all the old footage. And, yeah, just kind of this, like, missing kind of interesting piece of wrestling history and that like, you know, uh, it doesn't get really talked about that much. And, you know, Pat is really kind of the foremost expert on Montreal wrestling. And he was actually the first person that we reached out to. I think the first person we reached out to, to tell this story. Um, he actually wrote a book that's really fascinating that I, uh, recommend to anybody who wants to find out more about, uh, Montreal wrestling, which is called mad dogs, midgets, and screw jobs. And it's great, and it, it goes into kind of the history of uh, just wrestling in that province, and uh, and and yeah, Pat was uh, really the first person that we contacted, and uh, like I said, and he's the one that had relationships with Tony Moulet and Gino Brito, and actually uh, Claudia Bresciano, you know, uh, Dino's daughter. He's the person that kind of came aboard uh, to to help tell us to, or to help tell the story. And really put us in touch with uh, um, a lot of these folks and really made it happen. So uh, I don't think we could have done this story uh, without Pat at all. No, definitely. And there was because there was like, you know, a language barrier for Evan and I, Pat actually sat in on some of the interviews and he conducted some of them, some of them yeah. um, for us, um, speaking French and translating it to us, uh, which, yeah, that was really cool. Yeah. And just like, you know, Pat's you know, the only other person who's ever, you know, uh, done like, like done an interview for the show other than myself, you know? Um, so yeah, it was, it was cool. It was really, really cool experience to get to work with him. And, uh, and he's just so knowledgeable about all this, all of this stuff. Yeah. It's pretty fun to, to learn all of that because I, I like most of the folks watching this, I'm sure, you know, grew up just a WWF fan. So to learn that, you know, international wrestling was a ratings juggernaut. And I mean, just such a huge promotion to the point that I guess 85, 86, there was even talk of doing a Dino Bravo Hulk Hogan match in Montreal. And they said they would have mm -hmm. needed a stadium to hold it, but perhaps Vince had concerns that maybe Dino would have been the baby face in that scenario. And he didn't want to sort of derail Hulkamania. What'd you guys think of that story? Did that catch you off guard, Jason? Um, it, it didn't necessarily catch me off guard because it just seems like it's it's like it's a story I felt like I've heard before in wrestling where this kind of thing happens. Um, but in a sense, you know, as someone who is Canadian and kind of grew up as a fan of Dino Bravo, that would have been something cool to see like at that time. Like, um, but oh, no doubt, but it, you know, didn't happen. Yeah. And from my understanding um, of what that you know, again, we only have so much runtime to get into, 
you know, the specifics of certain stuff. But from my um, understanding is that uh, WWF and International Wrestling were actually running a bunch of jo- uh, joined shows. Like they were collaborating on shows together um, from 1985, I think, to something like the beginning of 1986. And so they 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 were planning on doing a a uh, Dino Bravo Hulk Hogan uh, big main event um, at, at, at now the name escapes me of that of the of the huge stadium there in Montreal and uh, but but literally like at the last minute they they were concerned because you know Dino was a babyface obviously there he was the babyface there that he was just concerned that you know that Dino would be more popular and he wouldn't make an impact there and maybe Vince had future plans for that territory which we know he did. So, um, yeah, so, so that was uh, enough for him to cancel it. And I believe in Pat's book, he talks about how Jerry Briscoe corroborated that story. Um, is something that, that, that he remembers that it happened. So interesting. The stadium that you were trying to remember is Olympic stadium. And thank you. The other Pat right. that I don't think has been mentioned is Pat Patterson, Pat Patterson from Montreal. He knew all of these guys. If there were joint shows run together, I don't think it would take a huge leap of faith to say that. Perhaps Pat Patterson was the driving force and pushing McMahon to do that because for years and years, we as wrestling fans have heard, well, Montreal's different. Like you've got to have, you know, and, and, and the person we always heard that around was also featured in this documentary, Jacques Rougeau and Jacques talks about how he felt like, Hey, he should have been a main eventer, even in Dino's territory, but he was on third or fourth. And when he winds up mm. leaving to join the WWF, uh, Dino was begging him not to, as well as his own father, but. He does. And then as we know, Dino would wind up, uh, deciding, Hey, if I can't beat him, I should join him. And he joins the company, but Jacques Rougeau has always been just a lightning rod of controversy in the wrestling business. And you guys got to meet him and spend some time with him. What was that experience like Jason? It was, it, it was funny. Uh, when he like, like you see, like, uh, like pretty much how he like pulled up onto the scene for our interview in that like three wheel motorbike. <laughs> and at first it was just it was just sight to see like coming down the street like I, it kind of like took me back and then like he got off the motorcycle and he was just so so friendly so charismatic i remember we, like we instantly got him into the location started getting ready for the interview and then like there was some like construction work outside or no someone was someone was mowing their lawn across it was, like the industrial lawn mowers it was like oh, yeah and it was sound just, nightmare it was a total sound nightmare and he could see that like we were like kind of frustrated with it and he was like boys don't worry about it and he like got up went outside and we just watched him like talk to these people and then he came back and he's like it's all done like don't worry about it and, and it was good to go <laughs> they yeah no one on the lawnmowers. yeah i've never never had an interview subject uh take care of a sound issue for us so that was really cool <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, he, uh, he has quite the line at the beginning of this episode when he says this was a le- essentially something like, uh, something along the lines of this was a lesson for everybody, myself included. Everyone is touchable. What mm. a, what a remarkable, I mean, I don't know. That's just what, what a lesson to take away from this. And you know, the, the people who were touched most by Dino's passing, of course, are his family members. And we see not just his widow, but his daughter as well. And I thought whoever's idea this was of as she sort of as the daughter sort of retelling the story of her dad taking her into the WWF locker room when she was a little kid what a great shot that is and it really brings it in perspective from a child standpoint of what this must be like to get a a peek behind the curtain in this sort of crazy 
universe that doesn't exist outside the curtain. Yeah, I'm glad that you picked up on that because that was something that was really um, uh, that whole like the family perspective on you know, being swept up into this world of the WWF was definitely something we wanted to try and have come through the episode. Because obviously, you know, if you're a hometown hero, uh, as D- I mean, I mean, Dino did travel around to the other territories. I mean, he did, you know, make the circuits around in the States. But I'm sure that his travel schedule was nowhere near comparison to what it was in the WWF, obviously. And just for, you know, his daughter being six or seven, or probably about five or six or whatever at the time, and, and, and really seeing you know, meeting Jake the Snake and meeting Earthquake and all these other, you know, wild characters. I mean, there was one point, at one point in the episode, there was a a story that we cut out for time, but it was a story about that uh, Claudia told about how, like, she'd be chilling with Earthquake a lot when she was (laughs) little, you know, and she'd be playing playing cards. Yeah, they were playing cards, like her and Earthquake. Like, we're just chilling and playing cards and um, <laughs> and stuff like that. And these wrestlers, when they would when they would come up to Quebec, like, when, when, these, uh, when certain WWF guys, like a Randy or Jake or whatever, would come up to WWF, I mean, a lot of these guys would stop over at Dino's house because he was, like, you know, such an important, uh, you know, person in that community as far as wrestling goes. So, yeah, that was something we really wanted to show because – you know, when when he did make the switch, it definitely was an entirely different lifestyle change for his family as well. Not only just in him being gone, but also, as we learned in the episode, um, monetarily for him as well. Yeah. And one thing, too, we're just like we're always fascinated in is the the kid's perspective in this world. Like when you're at that age and you're dealing with like such, they're being introduced to like such larger than life characters and you like at that period, you believe in things like Santa Claus or like the Easter <laughs> <laughs> to a degree, you know, like these characters, I think, like would come to life in such a way. I think that um, at, from a child's perspective, I just I can just only imagine, you know, how exciting that would be. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole thing is exciting. I mean, Pat describes Dino Bravo's look as an action figure come to life and. I thought that was such an apt description of him. And, you know, he was this larger than life character, but his look definitely changed in the WWF. And a lot is made about his hair change in color from, from being a brunette to a bleach blonde. And I got to tell you, it's hard to eat for me as a, as a WWF fan who saw the blonde version first, it's hard to even recognize Dino with dark hair. Uh, what did you guys make of, of the family making such a big deal of the hair color change? I mean, I guess that's probably one of the, the bigger, more memorable moments in a young person's life when your dad has such a major switch and he's not with you very long. Oh my God. I remember the first time my dad shaved his mustache <laughs> and I came around the corner and I thought he was a completely different person. Yeah. You know, I was absolutely shocked. So I can only imagine from Claudia's perspective, this was like very, very shocking, but yeah, it's really interesting. You know, like I never really heard anyone pinpoint like what is like Dino Bravo's gimmick? Like when when they turned him blonde and gave him like all like the fleur de lis like imagery, it's like a very like the only the closest thing I can kind of compare it to is it's like a kind of like a like a a French like Catholic colonial like character, you know that his character is all about his like heritage. You know he like teams up with Frenchie Martin because it's like it's more closer to his heritage. He's proud of his heritage. Is like is the gimmick in some way supposed to be a representation of like 
you know, a, 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 like an old colonial Quebec, French uh, Quebec sort of gimmick. I don't know. It's interesting. Well, it's also, you know, it's also so the WWF can probably, you know, use him as a heel and say, oh, the the Canadian menace, you know, is loose, yeah, you know, and that type of thing, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, it's um, the whole the whole story point of of his hair, uh, you know, dyeing his hair to become blonde is like a very symbolic metaphorical thing, because it's kind of like, you know, here's a guy and, and Jacques says it again. I mean. You know, I don't know what we would have done without Jacques, actually, because he he really boils down things in, into um, in, in, into into some very he makes some very poignant uh, points in this, which he talks about how when you come to the WWF, don't come with an ego because you're just a number, you know, you're just a character, you know, and 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 I think that that really is that is so exemplified in that because you know Dino was this this like homegrown hero in Quebec. That probably you know work clawed his way to the top and became someone that everyone looked up to. And then in the WWF, they just basically you know, it, it, and they also say you you never die like an Italian's hair blonde or whatever he says. And then they just they just kind of take him and they kind of almost dare I say emasculate him in a, in a little bit of a way by making him blonde. And then uh, it's just kind of like this. I mean, and we've seen WWF do that to other classic you know territory wrestlers as well. And it's like that you know, the effect that I think it had on him. Cause I don't think he was particularly happy with it. I think just, I think he saw himself, you know, having bigger programs and, you know, being more successful in the WWF. I think he was happy to make the money he, he was making, but I think he had different plans for himself. So the fact that he kind of got disillusioned a little bit, um, with wrestling definitely is something that set him on his path, uh, that, you know, as we know that he would eventually take towards the end of his life. Talk about getting the family involved. You know, I, I feel like the family in this episode in particular, just jump off the screen and you know, it, it's, it's primarily the, the daughter and of course the widow, this doesn't feel like, um, something that would have been easy for them to talk about, especially the widow. I mean, at one point she even says, you know, she doesn't really want to talk about that night, which mm -hmm. I assume probably presents a certain set of challenges when the whole point of this episode is to talk about that night and figure out what happened. But we have to give a little bit of background for context at that mm -hmm. point as the creators of this thing, I'm sure you just think, okay, we're going to have to use her, you know, her footage and, and try to angle this interview with her to be context of who he was and then how they moved on. But that has to be a little disappointing but i imagine it was a concession you knew you would have to make getting there talk to me about getting the family involved and how you sort of had to tiptoe a little bit with his uh with his widow evan yeah um yeah so so dion um actually uh came into the picture uh as a as an interview subject for this during season two um, she wasn't really, um, somebody, she, she didn't really, I, I, I can't remember if we approached her or if basically Claudia just told us that she didn't want to, you know, participate back during season one. I can't quite remember how that went I down, think that but was it. Yeah. that was it, right? Like there's no way my mom was going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so in season one, we didn't really even know that we would have her in the episode. It was just Claudia as like the family member. And, um, so getting the family, uh, on board really started with Pat. And Pat um, had a relationship, uh, knew, knew Claudia, um, I think maybe interviewed her or just talked to her before. 
And um, basically, you know, Pat set it up and we took a big trip to Montreal um, to, to basically shoot a majority of the interviews, you know, two years ago. And um, <laughs> and uh, we were filming, I think, the interview with Claude Poirier, who's one of the uh, crime reporters that you hear um, in the story. He's one of the most famous crime crime reporters in Montreal. I mean, he's been yeah. on TV for over 40 years. He used to be a hostage negotiator. Um, he's been shot, I think, a couple of times. <laughs> like, he's a really wild character and it was really cool to be able to get him in the in the show um because he really actually did his homework before he showed up for the interview i mean he talked to a lot of his um, i know i'm getting off subject but he 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 talked to a lot of his um uh police and and criminal informants to get some info for us on dino like the night before and that was a really cool like just really exhilarating interview uh, but anyway so talking about claudia so claudia was on board and i believe we were going to shoot her interview that same day and uh, we were sitting uh, there doing the interview with Claude, and uh, Pat gets a text message on his phone, and then he like pulls me aside. He's like, "Evan, I got to talk to you." And we go out to the patio of, of where we were shooting the interview, and he said, uh, "You know, Claudia doesn't want to do the interview anymore." Um, and so she actually effectively pulled out of the of the show, and 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 we were like, "Oh no!" Like it was a it was obviously a big problem, but. You know, Jason and I had just come off of shooting the Gino Hernandez material. I believe around that same time we were shooting all the Gino stuff, and um, and and the the Gino Hernandez episode and this episode ha- share a lot in common. Um, obviously, because there is some criminal underworld element that's fused with this wrestling story, um, and and you also have a family that's kind of been left in the dark and um, and uh, is uh, is kind of you know apprehensive about potential repercussions and things like that. There was that kind of common theme, so we knew that just kind of having been through that, it was like, well, Claudia doesn't want to do the interview now, so we're we're ne- we're not going to pressure anybody, we're not going to force anybody to do it, you know, or whatever. And we actually hadn't had the opportunity to meet her yet, or to much less to really talk to her. So. You know, we made the decision that night. Um, let's 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 cancel the interview completely. Um, we we didn't even try to convince her, and we uh, just basically like went out to dinner. We just said let's you know let's you know no cameras. Let's just go out and talk and 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 put faces to names. And so it was me and it was Pat and it was Jason and Claudia and I think and uh, her, her husband. Her husband, right? Yeah, her husband. Yeah. And and we all just sat there and we all just kind of just got to know each other. And I think, uh, Jason, you, you were telling me that you, you pinpointed the moment you thought that. Well, yeah. Like, you know, I could sense she's just trying to gauge like who we are as people and where, what our motives were for telling this story. And I, I like, I was just expressing to her, like my admiration for like Dino and like hearing this story about how like her mother was, is like a ballerina and how like, and Dino, her father was, a wrestler and how they are essentially I are like two artists who like came together like these two performers people who make a living by performing their art for people and I just thought it was just really romantic and um, just uh, just really fascinating that those two people came together in that way and she kind of was taken back by that and she was like thought she never really heard it like put into that perspective or ever heard anyone like talk about her father as like an artist 
And uh, I think she like really uh, appreciated that. And she saw that we were, we were approaching this in a way that um, had love towards her father and wasn't just going to be something that we wanted to just, you know, delve into the, the negative aspects of his life, but wanted to show, you know, like who he was as a person. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is kind of a very interesting, like the wrestler and the ballerina is a very like cinematic kind of idea, which is, which is cool. And, um, <clears throat> and so, so from some, so from then on, we, we like really hit it off. Cause I mean, you know, I mean, a TV crew, you know, 25 years later starts snooping around on this story. And I could totally understand where she yeah. was coming from in terms of like, you know, she's never really spoken about this before on camera. And, you know, that's something that we can sometimes take for granted uh, sometimes because it's like you have the pressures of a, a, a shoot schedule and an, and, an, and, an, and an edit schedule and like, you know, all these deadlines and, you know, you have to get these interviews like they have to happen and then they, they have to be transcribed. And there's there's so many days in the week. And, you know, and and, and so many times we find like the, the biggest challenges of making the show is sometimes, you know, balancing the, the deadlines, but also balancing like very human uh, things like this, you know, because a, a lot of the times we ask a lot of people. I mean, we're asking people to basically open up on camera. A lot of people who've never spoken on camera before and talk about some of the like the the actual darkest thing that's ever happened in their life, you know. So, so, um, so when situations like this arise, it kind of reminds us, like, you know, wait a minute, you got to take a step back. And you have to, you know, you have to approach this with your heart and you really do have to, um, you know, take the time to really earn the trust from the other person and, and uh, in order to tell this story. And so that's what we were like, realized that we had to do. And so we did that and, and it couldn't have gone any better. She's so cool. She's like, she's awesome. Claudia is amazing. Yeah. And, um, and so then from that point on, we made... Uh, arrangements I think to come back within a matter of weeks I want to say I think it was and uh, we came back um, a few weeks later and we shot the interview with her and 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 Pat also did that interview um, mainly because Claudia wanted to do the interview in French um, and that was just an interesting experience because doing the interviews uh, for me, you know, and, and basically having to have them translated on the fly is just in and of itself kind of an interesting challenge because there'd be a time where like, basically I would be in a separate room. Um, and, uh, basically our sound guy who we have to talk about, uh, this might be a transition to our sound guy, but he was, he, he was, he, he was local from, from Quebec. And then he basically would be just translating to me on the fly, describing what the person is saying. And then I would have to like take that and then you know, try and get questions over to Pat. And it was kind of an interesting challenge because that's something I've never had to do before. Um, but if we can talk about the sound guy, it's a really interesting story. Shoot, let's do it. Why not? <laughs> yeah, Why we got it. Um, okay, okay. So I'll start it. And then Jason, I'll give you the <laughs> yeah. tag. Um, so when we got to Montreal um, to start filming, I think the first interview was Gino Brito. And uh, we show up. And, um, you know, Vice usually just contacts like a local agency or like a local guild or whatever and then just hires like, you know, says, oh, we, we need a sound guy booked on this day. And they send someone totally by random. And so I get to the location and then the sound guy's there and he introduces himself and his name is Harry Zafrani. And he introduces himself. 
he has no idea what we're doing. He has no idea like what he, you know, what project he's working on or wh- like what we're shooting. And he's like, he's just asking me some questions about like, you know, w- w- like what's the interview? And I said, well, we're doing a documentary series about wrestling, uh, about um, professional wrestling. And he kind of looks at me and he's like, oh, I've done a, I worked on a documentary uh, about wrestling before. And I was like, oh, really? Oh, wow. Really? Which, which one? And he was like, um, wrestling with shadows, wrestling with shadows. Wow. And I was like, what you worked on wrestling with shadows? Like, really? Couldn't believe it. I know. And I I was just like, wait, hang on. Whoa, 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 hang on. And then, and then, and then he was like, uh, he actually went to describe that he had never seen it before. He's like, I'd never seen it. And then we're like, what? You've never seen it? Like, you got to watch it. And yeah, then, like, and we, we were, I remember we were like, 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 we were asking him, like, are you like, did you? Whoa. Like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, that's not because, but that came up organically. Sorry to step on your toes there. But basically, what I remember happening is he started to describe how he was a sound guy locally in Montreal. So then we're like, wait a minute. So were you at Survivor Series? And then he was like, oh, yeah. Like, you know, and he started talking about how, you know, he's the sound guy that's ringside during the Montreal screw job. Yeah. Like, and I'm just right like, there, like right, like five feet away from it. Yes. Yeah. Which is crazy. And then us knowing the, the documentary really well, because it's amazing. It, we uh, then deduced, like, wait a minute, did you put the microphone on Brett, like, when he went to go talk to Vince? And he was like, yes, I was the person that put the microphone on Brett. And then it was just like, oh, my God. But he didn't be- even know the significance of that because he never even watched the documentary. So he had no, no idea, like, what that even meant. He like he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember doing that. And we're like, oh, my God. Like, yeah, this you is have a no idea, deal. man. Like, that, this is a big deal. Like, people have wondered about this. And he's like, what? Like, he was totally oblivious to it. So then we gave him specific instructions that you have to go home tonight after the interview and you have to watch Wrestling with Shadows because we're going to be interviewing you tomorrow or whatever, you know? (laughs) And so he just didn't think, you know, showing up to this film shoot that he was going to become an interview subject. Um, And so so he – I remember (laughs) – the next day i remember just being like so did you watch it and he's like yeah and i was like what'd you think and he goes they screwed brett (laughs) (laughs) and so yeah so then we we (laughs) we put this camera on him and just interviewed him and he and and he told us the story of being there and what he remembers of the chaos and but he doesn't understand much about wrestling so he didn't really know what like was going on, but he knew something crazy was going on. And then uh, that's when, if you go back and you watch the Montreal Screwjob episode of uh, our show in season one, you'll see that we interviewed just for like 15 seconds. We interviewed Harry. He's in the show and, you know, kind of tongue in cheek. We thought it would be like a little extreme to put, we found the sound guy from wrestling with shadows (laughs) to, to, to bring this new thing to light. But um, yeah, that was, it just happened organically. It was like this crazy random thing. What a weird story, man. You guys have had fun putting this together. Let's talk a little bit about, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the line at the beginning of the show that said, Dana loved to live dangerously. And, you know, I guess we should mention sort of the, the way all of this story starts is when he gets the big WWF contract, he, he buys the Mercedes, he buys the million dollar house, which 
and 87. There's no telling what that's worth now. And even, mm-hmm. you know, it's touched on that he bought his daughter a car when she was four years old, just to sort of flex back mm-hmm. before that was even a word. And there's an interesting line from Jacques Rougeau where he says, one thing you don't bring to the WWF was an ego. All the shames and fears you have, it's going to happen. And of course that leads into the conversation about the blonde hair and he's not really a top guy and he's losing a lot. And then ultimately his contract is not renewed. And then there's, you know, the famous quote, and that's where the trouble starts. And you hear from his wife that they've got this huge house and the bills are really stacking up and they go into sort of survival mode. And that's when we first learn about the, uh, am I saying this right? Catroni family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that Vic mm-hmm. is the leader. Uh, this is a former Vic Vincent who used to be a wrestler. He's the quote unquote father of the mob in Montreal, or at least that's the way he was described. And it turns out he's Dino's uncle. And I got to tell you, man, Mm -hmm. I have heard this sort of story that, oh, it was mob related and there were cigarettes involved. And I even, um, hung out with an old timer, uh, once upon a time and and asked about Dino (laughs) and he said, oh, I, I didn't know what he was up to, but I knew he was you know, something was amiss. He came to some of the shows in like a pinstripe suit and Dino never wore a suit like that. And he was flashing all this cash and, and then he was dead. So a lot of, even the guys sort of assume that there was some sort of mafioso tie, but I don't think it was widely known that this Vic Vincent, the, the quote unquote father of the mob in Montreal was his freaking uncle. Was that news to you guys as well? Well, somewhere along the somewhere along the way, I, I, during the research phase, uh, that had popped up. That basically, through marriage, um, he was uh, he he became his uncle, um, and uh, it it is kind of one of the interesting things to look at in the story because you it's something you obviously can't ignore when you're looking at it, but also at the same time, as you see with the different you know crime reporters, Claude and Andre, as they kind of talk about the story. They're not really mentioning – they're not really or, – or they didn't really believe that the Montreal Mafia, uh, so to speak, really had that much to do with his with, with his death. Right. Um, mainly because these different organizations, um, you know, the, the, the biker gangs um, and also the First Nations, uh, you know, communities were involved in that uh, cigarette business more so than I believe the mob was at the time. So, or at least that's my understanding. Um, so it's almost kind of like this red herring of the story. Um, but as Dion talks about in the show, you know, she talks about him becoming this debt collector um, and becoming, you know, somebody who was basically a mob enforcer. And now that is something that was completely news to me because I think when we were filming it during season one, Claude mentions that in his interview. He mentioned something about how well the mafia saw him as, uh, you know, an imposing, he had like an imposing stature and they thought they could use him. But like, imagine like that to me, that's like, imagine you're in Montreal, you know, you owe some guy some money and then, you know, fucking Dino Bravo shows up to like, you know, beat you up for it. You know, like that's, that's wild. Cause he must've been, you know, recognizable at least to those, to anyone in, in Montreal. 
So, but that was the biggest news to me is I didn't know after he said that. And then Dion confirmed it when we got to interview her in season uh, two time period that, that I couldn't believe that uh, that was uh, like a real thing. And also that they had a really transparent relationship. I mean, she was full, she was aware of everything he was doing, um, you know, from being uh, a debt collector into now and then to being part of the uh, cigarette smuggling um, uh thing that like she, you know they didn't hold any secrets between each other is what was what that was what my my impression was it's uh it's just fascinating to me you know how much i learned in this you know especially as you pointed out dino as a as a debt collector i mean if you were writing a movie i mean you'd probably cast someone who looks just like dino in that role and then we hear the story uh from Jacques about you know being in a bar and there's a hockey player for their least favorite team there and I mean, it almost hmm. looks like when you guys recreate it, it's like a, a Joe Pesci scene from a gangster movie. Is it not? Yeah. That was kind of interesting for me to find out was just how much of a fan of the Montreal Canadians that, um, Dino was to like the point that he, like there's reports that like, he like got his like season tickets, like his seats right behind the bench of the Quebec Nordiques who were the rival hockey team in Montreal to the Montreal Canadians at the time. And he would, like, you know, get into, like, arguments with the coach of the Quebec Nordiques to the point I think it actually got physical, where, like, I think the coach had enough and, like, jumped the boards or whatever, and uh, him and yeah. Dino, like, got into it. But, uh, yeah, it was, it, it was funny to hear just, like, how much of a fan he was, like, how passionate he was about the Montreal Canadiens to the point, you know, this, the very last thing he saw was... a. Montreal Canadiens game. That's what he was watching when he was killed. Yeah, and w one other thing too that you mentioned uh, is is talking about kind of his fearlessness was something that we tried to get across in the episode. Um, and you know, I guess him kind of suiting up and getting into this new lifestyle was something that that like from what we understand he he really took to quite easily and maybe a little bit naively and found himself a little in over his head but you know he really did kind of have that recklessness in his lifestyle from what i from what we understand from you know Gino and T Gino Brito and Tony Millay would would talk about how you know he was always driving his cars like super fast and he was always getting into car accidents and crashing these like really expensive cars and seemingly walking away like unscathed or like motorcycle accidents even so he really was kind of like had this kind of very reckless uh live fast kind of lifestyle in terms of you know just not being afraid of anything or or anyone and you know and and he just really uh like with that story in the bar like you know we, we tried to really show that you know he, he he would just beat up anybody you know he didn't he didn't you know or, or like he could you know he was a nice guy but if you were like as they say in the episode if 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 he didn't like you oh boy look out Let's talk a little bit about, you know, the dark side of the whole thing. You know, I think Jacques very early on says 11 bullets in the body, seven in the head. Then Jericho says seven to the head, four to the body. Right. And then there's the police report, I think said there were 17 bullet casings on the floor from two different weapons. And there's lots of theories. Hey, it was, had to be someone he knew because he was relaxed and, uh, the door, you know, was, wasn't locked and. It didn't like there was a struggle for them to get in, but then other folks would say, well, he never locked his doors and there's just so much around, you know, the actual who done it part of this. What do you guys believe to be factual as far as, and I hate to break it down like this, 
how many weapons were used because there's a theory that maybe it was one person and they wanted it to look like two. Uh, and, and then there's lots of different conjecture about how many shots Dino took. What did you believe to be the, the truth, Evan? The, uh, number of shots that he took is act the, the actual correct number is the number that, that Jericho says in the episode. Um, uh, and, and, you know, there were two weapons on the scene that were found there. That's all, that's all factual. Um, as far as man, I mean, you know, you see a lot of different, a lot of different scenarios presented in the episode and, um, it's kind of, again, you know, something also that pops up in the episode, uh, is that the, uh, the Quebec authorities, uh, you know, did not participate in this episode, meaning, you know, we weren't, there aren't any case files to pour over. There isn't any investigative materials to look at, you know, so we only can really rely on what is available in, um, newspaper articles and, you know, obviously interviews with other people, um, to, to draw conclusions, um, because it, it, this case is still open. So it is an unsolved case. And so it, it presents itself with a lot of challenges in terms of, I mean, this was a, a challenging episode for us to do, um, for, for a number of reasons and that, you know, knowing that we kind of have to step in to tell this story, uh, knowing that it's pretty likely we're not going to get a conclusion, you know, we're not going to solve this murder, you know, we're not going to find out who his killers or killer killers was. So, you know, um, that was a challenge, but you know, so, and, 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 and I will say that you can spend time on Reddit going deep on wrestling Reddit threads or true crime Reddit threads and see a lot of different theories that people have, um, you know, have conjecture over. And you can also, and, and, I, and we've received a lot of strange tips too from people on Twitter and Instagram. I mean, I've gotten a number of things where it's like my uncle, uh, you know, used to be in the Hells Angels and he can uh, confirm for a fact that, you know, it was these two guys that came in there and killed, you know, and like things like that. But those are just completely unverifiable little things that people say. And I've gotten so many of them and so many different versions of them that, again, it's just like, you know, you can't believe any of them, really. So um, so for me, you know, it's, it's tough to say because my because my personal opinion like looking at um, just the facts of what was going on in Montreal at the time, I tend to believe that, you know, at least the information that Claude put forward, um, you know, about uh, and and also Andre talking about like the seizure of cigarettes that was done by the by the uh, by the RCMP and stuff like that. I, I do believe that that is, you know, I, probably was a motive for his um, assassination. And I do think that it's it's maybe likely that it involves two parties, you know? Um, I don't know why. I don't really have anything to really back that up. I just kind of have that instinct that it's maybe not just one party that was involved in this situation um, because we do know that the First Nations and, you know, biker gangs were involved in the smuggling of cigarettes in Montreal, which is something we haven't even talked about yet, which is a bizarre thing, I think, to most Americans is this idea that, you know, uh, why are we smuggling cigarettes, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean you know, it's, it's got to be about taxes, right? I mean, that's what I assume, that, that you can get your if, – if they're made on a reservation of sorts, that's what we call it here in, in Alabama at least, then maybe yep. they're not subject to the same taxes, and so therefore the cigarettes become much more affordable? Yeah, it's, it's, it's like essentially the – you know, cigarettes were extremely expensive in – 
in in Quebec at the time. And uh, when you know, like the criminal underworld got involved in cigarette smuggling, it was actually proving to be a more lucrative business than it than it was, I think, to get involved in heroin or cocaine. Like the margin was 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 so much greater in that way, which is which is wild to think about. So it's 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 why a lot of different people saw an opportunity with it because obviously everyone more you know everyone smokes, you know, and and being able to supply that demand um, was just incredibly lucrative. Um, and uh, yeah, so I don't know. I don't really have anything to back that up. I just I've heard a few things, um, you know, and uh, but nothing we can prove. At least nothing to prove enough to put into the show definitively. Um, but you know that that's just my instinct. Let's talk a little bit about the the shot that you guys did of the daughter bringing him a drawing of of their family to the funeral. My God, what a, what a heartbreaking story and, and what a shot. I mean, that has to be emotional to even sort of replicate. Is it not? Yeah. It, it, you know, when she said that, um, it was, you know, just a heartbreaking like visual. And I think it's something that like just stayed with us ever since we'd done her interview. Um, and it just, even like, I remember like, it's one of like the, few times where we, where we hear from like um, from some of the other execs advice where they like pipe in on feedback on episodes where they were they said they got got like emotional about that moment um, and yeah it's just again like the, the perspective of being a kid like in this world and you know you like a lot of kids you already see your father as kind of like a superhero in a way and like just the, the just to how like big of Dino was a person, and I imagine just how much, like he when he was in a room, how much life he brought to that, you know, in, into a room. And I imagine that like the void of that for Claudia, with him gone, must have been just so like hard to comprehend. And that you know, and they talk about that. It's something we we wanted to share in there. It's just like how it, that was really hard for the other wrestlers at the funeral and everyone to kind of process was to see like how. Claudia was dealing with the situation. It's hard for me to imagine, you know, and I hate to be so gruesome about it, but after all this gunfire in an open casket, man, that, that just blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, you know, she, she mentions that she didn't recognize him at all, except for his hands. So you could only imagine, or his fingers, like you can only imagine like, you know, what that must've been like. Um, but yeah, I mean, from what I understand, from what I've heard about what the crime scene looked like, I mean, you know, I think it was pretty extreme uh, in terms of what it looked like. And I think that is, you know, I don't want to speak for her, but, you know, in terms of getting Dion on board, you know, that was something that, again, we didn't think was a possibility in season one. And then when we got season two up and running, um, it was like, what, what is this episode really missing? You know, and and uh, we basically just took a chance at because because you know during season one it was challenging um, making that whole season because we had we didn't have anything to point to nothing had been released yet uh, the show didn't really even have a title it didn't have you know there wasn't any examples to show families or share things with people so people had to just kind of blindly trust us during season one um which made it harder to get access to 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 people like this in this episode so 
we just tried again with season two that now that the show had been out and, you know, people had been talking about it. And um, to our surprise, you know, she she agreed to do the interview, which was so key because, you know, she does she does bring to light a lot of stuff that, it, um, you know, in terms of that, again, that tra- she confirms the debt collecting side of things. She confirms basically, you know, um, how, you know, he wanted to maintain that lifestyle after wrestling, which is a huge part of the story, too. I mean, that's a huge theme of this whole episode as well is kind of the life after wrestling. You know, um, and and how you know a lot of these guys don't necessarily plan for you know when 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 you're out of the spotlight, you know, when your body can't handle doing this anymore, or there's no real career for you left because there's only one real game in town, one to two game in te- you know games in town. It's tough. What do you do? And for someone like Dino, who's been wrestling ever since he was like probably in his teens, you know, um, there's not many options. You know, uh, obviously. You know, it's no fault of his own in terms of what he got into, but still, the point is there. Um, and so, you know, Dion getting aboard, as something we mentioned earlier on in the in in this show, is that you know we we did know going into the interview that that was uh, talking about the day of um, when he was killed was something that she didn't want to talk about, and it, I think it's only just kind of further exemplifies like just how how horrific that scene really was. Um, and so, yeah, that's something we just had to kind of you know, work around and obviously respect, you know, her wishes in that way to not ask her about that. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, something that's discovered three days after the murder. Uh, it said that they found around $55,000 cash in the house. And, you know, there's a theory that, well, people in this life have been killed for less, you know, and I know that the narrative here is, well, he's no longer with the company and, and bills are coming in and they got to, but in my head, I don't think 55,000 in cash is a, a super big deal for someone in the wrestling business, because for so long, the wrestling business was mostly a cash business. And you've heard a lot of old time promoters talk about having just stacks of cash hidden away because they wanted to avoid the tax liability on it. Did that jump out to you guys as, Hey, maybe this is it. Or did it feel just not that big of a deal to you? Well, I think, um, you know, obviously learning more about the uh, seizure of cigarettes in that warehouse, that whole thing, I think, was is, is much more of a revealing aspect of the story. Yes. But um, and obviously when, uh, you know, Andre talks about how Dino was spotted um, outside of that warehouse, you know, days before his murder and things like that. But I think that the fifty five thousand dollars in cash, if I'm remembering correctly, um, from the interview, uh, w- was more like how Claude was talking about how there was no shreds of evidence in terms of like, you know, you have this, um, this horrifying slaying happen, you know, in his own home and nobody knows why. I mean, you have to imagine from a public perception that, you know, why, you know, why, <laughs> you know, why did this happen? And, um, and then essentially, you know, the, the first bits of information that were coming out were, was pairing the cash with the cigarettes that were found in his house and then sort of deducing that. But that's really some of the only actual official evidence, to my knowledge, that's really been out there in the public before. So, um, you know, we just wanted to show that to kind of illustrate, well, you know, um, here's here's when people first started considering um, the, you know, the what really could have happened, you know, with how he died. Let's talk about that. You know, the uh, 
they're called natives in the documentary. The natives are a big part of the story. And, and his daughter even talks about, uh, Dino taking her to meet him. And of course this mm-hmm. is his sort of connect for the cigarettes and, and the way all of this comes to be. And they're desc- described as contraband cigarettes and the seizure of $400,000 worth of these contraband cigarettes really comes to life from Rick Martell. And Rick Martell is not interviewed by you guys as part of the project. Instead, we're using shoot interview footage. Talk to us about your attempts to get Rick Martell and, and then why you decided to just go with the shoot interview footage and what you make of, there's a little bit of a debate last night as to whether or not that should have been shown, uh, as part of the, the documentary last night, I thought it really sort of filled the gaps to the story. And I don't think. It would have been a complete story without that footage. And I'm sure you guys felt the same way when you made the decision to include it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I kind of refer to Rick Martell as the white whale of dark side of the ring <laughs> in terms of trying to get, I don't think I've tried harder to get, uh, an interview and, 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 and been on, and been unsuccessful. Um, and, and across season one, into season two, I tried very, very, very hard. Um, and basically, uh, during season one, you know, it was basically told to me that, you know, Rick doesn't want anything to do with the wrestling anymore. Um, and, uh, don't even try like that. That was basically what I was told was don't even try. Like, it's not even worth your time. And I, I, and I just didn't believe that because I've been told no, many times about people who wound up in our show, you know, and, 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 and to be able to just, you know, take the time to get to know somebody and to, you know, earn their trust is something that, you know, we would have done in this situation as well. Um, and so I didn't even try. I basically took that advice in season one where it was like, okay, well, you know, he's not going to participate. Okay. Oh, well. And then season two, it was kind of like, now I'm definitely going to try myself. I I need to hear from him that he's going to say no before you know because because we we'd obviously seen that shoot interview and we knew how important that side of that aspect of the story is i mean you know he's largely responsible uh for a lot of that information like what what us wrestling fans we know about what happened you know because of that interview so it's important to for us to have that and obviously it wouldn't be our preference to show a shoot interview mainly because you know um we want to film our own interviews and have them look a certain way. <laughs> um, but so anyway, so I tried really hard. I got his contact information. Um, I can't even remember how I got it, but I got his email address. I, I, I wrote him a letter in terms of like, you know, knowing full well that, you know, he has, he's basically given up on wrestling. As far as I understand, he doesn't want anything to do with wrestling anymore. He's, he's retired and he has a real estate career and, and he wants to, he wants to, you know, create that life for himself now. And so I knew that going in and I I was basically just writing him an email saying, look, the story we're doing about your, about, about, about your friend, your former colleague, Dino Bravo, this isn't a wrestling story. I mean, it really isn't, you know, or it's mostly not, it's, 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 it's really about, you know, him, his death and his family. And I was hoping that that would be an angle in terms of like, uh, him wanting to at least get on the phone to talk to me about it. That's all I, all I was looking for. Um, so the email went, you know, a couple emails went, didn't go responded. I actually talked to, um, a few other guys who I knew that knew Rick personally from doing a couple shows with him back when he was doing stuff regarding wrestling, probably around the same time that he did that shoot interview. And um, they were able to get him on the phone and talk to him firsthand. And he reiterated, basically reiterated the same thing. 
you know, that his wrestling days, you know, he, he, he that that's, you know, over for him. He doesn't want anything to do with it anymore. And he doesn't want to be in, uh, in the story. And then, you know, I also tried through the family. I tried also <laughs> getting, uh, you know, Claudia to reach out directly to Rick. Um, and, and basically just do, you know, for the same, for the same purpose, you know, like, you know, this information about the story, you knew my father again, still didn't want to do it. So that was something that, at some point we had to call it, you know, we had to call it that this isn't going to happen. Um, and then it was kind of this difficult decision because it's not obviously our preference to have a shoot interview be in, in the show. Um, but those aspects of the story are really important. Um, you know, whether they are verifiable or whatever, but still they're very, it's, it's an important thing. If he was, you know, that close to Dino and Dino did confide in him in those, in those details. I mean, he may be one of the only people that knows that, you know, so I, it, it, we just felt like it was too important not to include. It's uh remarkable footage. You know, the old shoot interview discusses, you know, the, the idea that there was a big cocaine dealer in Montreal who wanted to get in on this cigarette smuggling biz. And then one day he finds himself late to pick up a shipment. He was supposed to pick it up on day one. Instead he goes on day three and that's where he winds up getting himself arrested. And it leads to a lot of people sort of wondering how much of a, a piece of the story of, of Dino's execution is tied around, tied up around that. And Jacques would write, or, or would say, uh, the person who killed him was a friend. That was his opinion. And, and he said it reeked of mafioso. There's other theories that it was the natives, but you guys had some crime investigators say, no way the natives didn't handle their business like this. They wouldn't murder someone off of you know, their land and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, others say that maybe the natives hired a motorcycle gang. And then there's another theory that it was a single shooter who used multiple caliber weapons to make it look like it was multiple guys. And the one thing that's never explicitly said that I think a lot of people on Twitter just jumped to the assumption last night, well, this is the coat guy getting revenge for getting popped and Dino being dismissive. Like, well, you were late. You should have been there two days ago. If you had to. <laughs> Pin it, Jason. Obviously, we don't know. This is an ongoing investigation. You guys tried to get the Montreal Police Department involved, but they wouldn't because they said the case is still open, which is a fucking joke. Jason, what what, what would you <laughs> what would you land on? What do you think? It, it, what's your theory of of who took Dino's life? I don't know, to be honest. I don't really have like a theory or my own conclusions. Um, we just, I feel, just tried to do our best to lay out all those different possible scenarios and kind of put it all out there in a way. As, you know, we said, like, this is an ongoing, like, investigation. And uh, we even put up the phone number for people to, you know, give tips if they hear anything. But it's like, I don't know. I, it's, um, it's, it's like this unfathomable tragedy that the family has dealt with for so long and haven't, you know, had any closure on it and it's pretty remarkable how like they're kind of not really like seeking they're not seeking closure they've kind of like found a way to move past it and that in itself is like really brave to see um so yeah it's like it sucks that there isn't like closure to it and we don't have like you know a, like a solid theory as to like what transpired um but we tried our best to kind of lay out all the different possible scenarios. What about you, Evan? I mean, do you have a theory? 
Um, well, I mean, it's just kind of what I was saying earlier. Um, you know, I mean, I, I can't base this in any, in any, in any fact, um, you know, but, you know, I, I tend to, I think, I, I think it's, it's, it's what, um, it's, it's what I think Andre says, who's, uh, who's one of the, um, mafia reporters uh in in the show he he wrote a book called mafia inc which is actually a, a bestseller uh in quebec in terms of the history of the quebec uh mob but um andre i think puts forth the idea of like the biker gangs um because um it, it, it this was their style in terms of um uh, the types of executions that they would do and how gruesome this was you know when when he does say that the mob is more classy and of course, like, you know, it's a little uncharacteristic of them necessarily to shoot them, especially in their in their living room and, and that type of thing. Normally it's in public or something out in the street. Uh, so I think I think because of this, the 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 unique gruesomeness of of the way that he was killed, that's that's where I personally tend to look. Um, and I, then I also kind of think about like, you know, was this? Yeah, like a contract that 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 the bikers picked up. Um, on some, you know, from somebody else. I don't know. Um, that's kind of one of the things that I've been leaning towards. But again, I can't verify that in any, in any, in any real tangible way. You know, obviously the people who've had to deal with this, you know, grieving and, and, and sort of who done it are the family. And when you hear mm -hmm. his daughter say, it's better, we don't know because knowing would bring us down more, man, there's that's such a well-rounded, like that's the, that's what we should all do as fans is, you know, learn from her words here and her wisdom. And they had to grow up fast. I mean, even his, his wife talks about being a 28 year old widow and, and, and widow just has a connotation where you just don't associate it with a 28 year old. But I mean, that puts in context how quickly he was, he was taken from us. And she also says that she got rid of everything which I know mm -hmm. from a production standpoint, uh, that's probably one of the first things you guys talk about when you go do these type of interviews is, Hey, do you have any old, of, of his old stuff? And then mm -hmm. to hear that she got rid of all of it just as a, a grieving process. This is, uh, this is one of the sadder stories you guys have covered. Would you agree, Evan? Definitely. I think, um, you know, because of the lack of closure, the gruesomeness of, uh, of, you know, his final evening and all of that. Yeah. It, it really is, um, a very sad story and, and yeah, just cause just because there is no closure and, you know, um, and, and then his family is kind of left behind and, and, you know, they've had to come to terms with this, which, you know, they have, you know, they have moved on and they've been able to do that, which is, which is, you know, is great to see, but, um, yeah, I mean, to, to, to revisit this story, I mean, I just can't imagine putting myself, uh, in their shoes, um, with what they've had to witness and what they've probably had to see with their own eyes is just, it's unfathomable. Jason up next, Dr. D what should we expect from this, uh, John Stossel story coming next <laughs> week on dark side of the ring? <laughs> Well, this is actually one of my favorite episodes. One of my favorite experiences of working on season two was getting to meet and hang out with Dr. D. David Schultz for a couple days. He was truly such a remarkable character. And, you know, we really um, appreciate the opportunities where we get to meet 
and ha- and spend time with wrestlers who come from the, like an era in which he comes from, like in the seventies and eighties, like wrestling. And cause it just, it feels like a whole other like world in a way. And, um, anyways, the story is basically about how it, it kind of goes into, um, the lengths that go went into protecting like the business and the secrets of the trade. And so, uh, basically, John Stossel, who was a reporter, was doing a story in the early 80s about how he was trying to expose wrestling. And um, he was speaking with wrestlers to try and get them to show him like the tricks of the trade. And he, along with like a news crew, went to, um, I believe, Madison Square Garden to interview wrestlers about it. And um, they put Dr. D. David Schultz in front of him. And in which, when Doctor and when um, John Stossel asked uh, Doctor D if wrestling is fake, Doctor D responded with like a two slaps to the face. And <laughs> it, it just it, it like exploded into this crazy story of how kind of like the demise of like his wrestling career and how that was like kind of what instigated it. Um, but yeah, it's a very <laughs> interesting, fun story. Yeah, and it's uh, it's it's uh, really interesting to see just kind of uh, the um, the story of how Doctor D's story and John Stossel's story, you know, and and uh, kind of intersect. And being able to edit both of those interviews together, I think, was a really kind of fun experience because, you know, for so long, you know, we've always wondered, like, you know, hearing John Stossel's side of the story, and um, it's just, yeah, it's definitely. Um, a more fun episode, um, and uh, th- you know, it's it's one of the most viral clips that has to do with wrestling. Is you know, is David Schultz slapping John Stossel on 2020, and so it was just really cool. I mean, we just wanted to set out to do kind of uh, like a like a, a look back at this expose. This is one of the major exposes on wrestling to try and expose it as being uh, fraudulent, you know. Um, and, and, and that was kind of historically looking at wrestling and how it's been taken down over the last, uh, you know, century is kind of trying to expose it as like, well, people are wasting their money on this. They're like, they're being duped buying tickets for something that isn't real. And that's still kind of a thing that, you know, even in there up until the early eighties, that was what John Stossel thought too. I mean, he was bringing down, you know, shady corporations and other people and, and doing those kind of exposés. And he saw wrestling in kind of a similar way, which is kind of strange. And then, um, you know, as the WWF was gaining in popularity and becoming this really big, you know, entertainment brand, he wanted to try and expose it, quote unquote, for what it really is. And, you know, the the irony of the story is that, you know, David Schultz, who is, you know, arguably one of um, – you know, wrestling's greatest protectors. I mean, he, you know, kayfabe to this guy is, is important. You know, it's, it, it's a religion to him, as we say in the episode. And so it's, it's just the irony of that, you know, David Schultz being someone who protected this business so sternly <laughs> on television, um, actually, um, wound up being kind of discarded by it and actually being the fall guy to use another kind of mob analogy, but he was kind of the fall guy for, um, for 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 kayfabe in a in a in a certain way, and so that that's the story that uh, we thought would be compelling for season two. A remarkable story. Tune in next week. It's Tuesday night on Vice, 10 p.m. Eastern. Uh, if you have Directv, it's channel 271. I don't miss an episode, and you shouldn't either. We'll be back next Wednesday talking about Doctor D and John Stossel. Uh, if you haven't already, follow these guys on Twitter. Evan, run down all the social media handles and where they can 
keep uh, teases and interactions going with you guys. Yeah, sure. Um, you can follow um, the show um, at Dark Side of Ring on Twitter, uh, at Dark Side of the Ring on Instagram. And uh, you can follow me at Evan Husney on Twitter and Instagram and at Jason Eisner on Twitter and Instagram. So there you go. And I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you tomorrow for another episode of Grillin' JR discussing John Cena. Talk to you soon. I've been telling you for a long time that SaveWithConrad.com can save you money, but don't take my word for it. What made you come to Save With Conrad in the first place? Uh, I was looking um, to buy my, my mother's house, and I was dealing with some local you know banks and mortgage companies, and I was just shopping around, and I, I do listen to all of the podcasts and uh you know i constantly hear it so i, I figured you know let me see what these guys have to, to offer now uh working with derek um what was your favorite part about working with him uh he, it was like he was around the corner you know if i if i needed something and i called him or i texted him or sent an email i would get a response like i was dealing with someone across town not you know from new jersey to alabama how much money were we able to save you you know we definitely saved thousands of dollars you know going with um you know, Conrad and, and Derek, you know, helping us out from what I was dealing with, with, uh, you know, what I was hearing from other mortgage companies, they, you know, first family was able to get us a better deal on the house. Would you recommend us to a friend or a coworker? Absolutely. would recommend you guys in a heartbeat. So what are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save right now for free. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Oh, and did I mention you could skip your next two house payments? Hurry to SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.